At the third stroke, the time sponsored by the University of Manchester will be time for the Jodcast precisely. The Jodcast. We don't need no education. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Nick Rattenbury, and Roy Smits. The Jodcast. September issue. Hello and welcome to the September issue of the Jodcast. And on today's show, we've got uh, Nick, Stuart, and Roy. Hi, guys. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. And hello, everybody out there. On this issue, we have an interview with Dill Folks about the Folks Telescope. We have the night sky, what there is to see, with Ian Morrison. And first, of course, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Magnetic filaments in the Perseus Cluster, liquid helium cores in gas giants, and the search for middle-sized black holes. NGC 1275 is an active galaxy at the centre of the Perseus Galaxy Cluster. Also known as Perseus A, it is well known for its radio source and is a strong emitter of X-rays due to the presence of a supermassive black hole at its core. It is one of the closest giant elliptical galaxies and has many spectacular features. The supermassive black hole at its centre blows enormous bubbles of material into the surrounding cluster gas, and giant gaseous filaments stretch out from the galaxy into the surrounding material. The cluster gas itself is at temperatures of many millions of degrees and emits large amounts of X-rays. The giant bubbles are visible with radio telescopes, while the filaments are seen in visible light and provide important information about how giant black holes can affect their environments. Using the advanced camera for surveys on board the Hubble Space Telescope, astronomers have, for the first time, resolved individual threads of gas which make up these filaments. Typically, these threads are only 200 light-years wide, but can be up to 20,000 light-years long and unusually straight. They typically contain about a million times the mass of our Sun, and are thought to be formed when cold gas from the core of the galaxy is dragged out in the wake of rising bubbles blown by the black hole. Surrounded by hotter material, it has been a mystery how these filaments have survived for so long without heating up and dispersing or collapsing to form stars. This new study, led by Andy Fabian at Cambridge University and published in Nature during August, suggests that the mechanism keeping these filaments from breaking up is magnetic fields which hold the charged gas in place. Some of the filaments are over 100 million years old, and the new data shows that magnetic fields could be responsible for containing the filaments and resisting forces that would distort the filaments otherwise. The observations also provide some information on the strength of the magnetic fields in the filaments. Thinner, more fragile filaments require stronger magnetic fields to support them, but are harder to detect. Although NGC 1275 is the nearest and best studied example of such filaments and their associated magnetic fields, similar structures are seen around other massive galaxies at the centres of clusters, but they are far more distant and more difficult to study. By studying this nearby system in detail, knowledge of how the gas interacts with the magnetic fields can then be applied to understanding more distant systems. Images of Jupiter and Saturn reveal turbulent gaseous atmospheres and impressive wind systems, but what goes on under the thick layer of clouds is more difficult to determine. Most studies of the gas giants have focused on hydrogen, since it is the most common element in these planets 
but a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences during August describes a study demonstrating that metallic helium could be present under the conditions that exist in the cores of these kinds of planet. In the dense core of the Earth, pressures reach about 3.5 million times normal atmospheric pressure, but this is small compared to the cores of Jupiter and Saturn. Pressures in Jupiter's core can reach 70 million times Earth's atmospheric pressure, and temperatures are between 10,000 and 20,000 degrees Celsius, two to four times hotter than the surface of the Sun. The physicists use theories based on quantum mechanics to study what happens to helium at these extreme temperatures and pressures. Under normal conditions on the Earth, helium is a colourless, electrically insulating gas, but what the study showed was that under the conditions found in the cores of the gas giants, helium becomes more like a liquid metal, with free-moving electrons capable of conducting electricity. The study also suggests that it is likely that liquid helium mixes with liquid hydrogen in the planet's cores, producing a liquid metal alloy. Evidence for supermassive black holes in the centres of galaxies, billions of times the mass of the Sun, is now fairly common. Evidence for solar-mass black holes, which occur as the result of supernova explosions, is also fairly widespread. Between these two extremes is a wide gap and a question over whether medium-sized black holes, those with masses between 1,000 and 10,000 times the mass of the Sun, might actually exist. One likely place to look for such middle-sized black holes is in the centres of globular clusters. Dense collections of millions of stars which exist in galactic halos. So far, none have been detected, but now a team of astronomers has carried out a thorough study of a particular globular cluster known as RZ-2109, looking for just such an object. In previous observations of RZ-2109 with ESA's Eximum newton telescope, the astronomers had found the telltale X-ray signature of an active black hole, accreting material from its surroundings, making it an ideal candidate for a middle-sized black hole. Using the Keck Observatory on Hawaii, the group studied the spectrum of the cluster and found that the black hole in the centre of the cluster is actually a small one, roughly ten times the mass of the Sun. The discovery of a small black hole rules out the existence of a medium-sized one in the cluster, since, if one did exist, it would either swallow up small black holes or kick them out of the cluster altogether, explains Daniel Stern of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, one of the authors of the study published in the Astrophysical Journal. Even though the likelihood of finding medium-sized black holes in a globular cluster now looks quite small, there are other places where they could exist. It is possible that they could be hiding in dwarf galaxies, or in the halo material deposited in larger galaxies when dwarf galaxies are accreted. And finally, ESA's Mars Express probe has been in Mars orbit since December 2003. It carried the ill-fated Beagle 2 probe to Mars, which separated from the orbiter and landed on the surface at Christmas in the same year. To verify the correct separation and trajectory of the Beagle 2 lander from Mars Express, a basic optical camera, the visual monitoring camera, was installed to photograph the retreating probe. After separation, the camera was turned off until, in 2007, the Mars Express flight control team based at Darmstadt in Germany switched it back on. After three years of inactivity, the camera was still in working order and has now been fine-tuned for wide-field imaging of Mars. The camera is unique in that it can provide global images of Mars, something which no other orbiter can currently do. Although images are only taken and relayed back to Earth on a low-priority basis, they are being published on the Mars Express website for members of the public to download and use. 
the team have invited anyone interested to help process the images, remove artefacts and try and determine which part of Mars is in the picture. The best results will be published on the team's website. Thanks, Megan. And yes, you can access all of those webcam images yourself. In fact, they want to get the public so totally involved, just in the same way that we want you involved with telling us how we're doing. And so let's move straight into the feedback section. What have we got, guys? So we have a feedback from Lee. He says, Hi all. A great podcast you have going here. I really enjoy it. Keep it going. But if I could just make one request... Remember you have a world audience here, and so a things to see in the southern hemisphere night sky would be really good. Can I make two requests? How about a special feature each month on some cutting-edge development or discovery where you can really throw some science at us? Cheers, Lee. Um, We do, on the Jodcast, report cutting-edge astrophysics from the top astronomers in the world who come and visit us here at Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. So we are doing that cutting-edge stuff, Lee. Take a look back in the archive and just see, take a listen to the people who we have had interviewed on the Jodcast in the past. This is cutting-edge research reported to you by us, the Jodcast. About doing a southern hemisphere night sky, we have asked our expert, Ian Morrison, whether he wouldn't mind highlighting a few things which can be seen from the Southern Hemisphere in upcoming episodes of the Jodcast. So we will be trying to minimize our Northern Hemisphere bias somewhat. So do stay tuned for Southern Hemisphere highlights in future episodes of the Jodcast in the Night Sky segment. So thank you very much for your feedback and your requests. But the Roy. truth is that the Southern Hemisphere already has so many beautiful things to see. We're missing so much <laughs> in the Northern Hemisphere. Well, of course, I mean, if there's anybody out there who wants to comment on what they've seen in the Southern Hemisphere night sky, is there something particularly interesting that they like looking at? If there's something particularly high in the sky, good visibility, etc., do drop us a line, send us your feedback, tell us what you're looking at in the night sky. Maybe you had a observing session and you were doing some, I don't know, Milky Way observations. Do let us know. But as a general guide, anything that Ian Morrison says is very low in the south from Manchester will be very high in the north for people in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm, so that's right. That's a handy way of working it out backwards. <laughs> and further feedback from Carlo Pristak. Hello, I'm listening to this podcast as I like astronomy. I find your shows fantastic. I was wondering, when did you have a discussion forum? Well, Carlo, that's a good good question. We are working on that and we shall hopefully have some news about that. In the next month or so. Yes, we're working towards setting up a forum so people can discuss the issues raised by the Jodcast in each episode. And it'll be great to uh, interact with the Jodcast audience community. So we're working on it. We're getting there. Just give us a little bit of time. Hopefully in the next couple of months we'll have some news for you on that. And we can all discuss what we are presenting to you on the Jodcast for each episode in the forum. And our last bit of feedback is from Nick Lister, who has sent us some suggestions for future interviewees on the Jodcast. Thanks very much for those, and we will try and get a hold of these guys and interview them. You mentioned Jeff Marcy and Paul Butler, who are pioneers in the field of extrasolar planet discovery. We will attempt to get hold of these folk and have an interview with them. And if anybody else out there has some ideas for people who they would like us to interview, do send them in. It's a great idea. Send us your ideas via the feedback page on the Jodcast website. So thank you very much to Nicholas for that. Dave, what's on the Facebook page? Well, believe it or not, the Facebook group membership has swelled to an amazing 233 members. 
which I think is fairly fantastic. That's fantastic. That's great. Hello to everybody out there following us on Facebook. And we have lots of comments on the Facebook wall. Uh, I can start down here with Tim Gerrish, who says, Hello all, love the show, especially the way you're able to do decent length interviews with people. Keeps me going while I'm in the gym. Keep up the good work. And in fact, someone else who listens whilst uh, sweating a lot is Adam McCoy, who says, Great show, Jod Squad. It almost makes doing household chores enjoyable. Almost. 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 (laughs) (laughs) We'll try and improve. (laughs) Jason Bowen listens to the Jodcast while he's wandering around his campus. He's an astronomy and physics undergrad at the University of Texas in Austin. Gethin Dylan Jones uh, wrote that he's been listening to and really enjoying the Jodcast for the last six months. Well done to all involved, and please keep up the good work. Then, as a new little feature on the Facebook wall, someone, uh, Roger Gray, has started Strange Places to, the, to Listen to the Jodcast. <laughs> well, we, we have quite a few of those. I think the most extreme I remember is someone listening to the Jodcast in the gym on a on a ship going through the Panama Canal. <laughs> I think that's the, the most extreme I remember. Well, here's one for you then. Roger Gray's uh, Strange Places to Listen to the Jodcast. He was at Ealing Studios having a full prosthetic head cast in plaster and latex for a small film part, that being a gangster who is later decapitated. And until they had to pour the goop over my ears, uh, he was happily listening to the fantastic Jocelyn Bell Burnell interview. And then he asks, are there any other listeners that have had weird experiences whilst enjoying the Jodcast? To which Regan Tetlow from Spain uh, says that she's a skydiving instructor in northern Spain and likes to listen on the way to altitude in the plane itself. Wow, so people listen at, at altitude. So yes, we're not, we're not just uh, across the earth, we are up above it as well. So hello to everyone that's left us feedback on the Facebook wall. And uh, keep the debates raging, actually, on the Facebook discussion group, because we have had discussions about SETI, is it worth it, and also the intro music. That's a couple of things that have happened whilst uh, the Facebook group has been left to its own devices. So yes, that's everything that's happened on Facebook. So, Stuart. Yes, on Twitter, we have 173 followers now. And Jamx UK says, great show, but don't fall asleep listening to space noises. I thought I was being invaded. I think that's a reference to the last episode where we had sounds from space. Which, if you missed, go back into the archives and have a listen. There's lots of good stuff on there. Okay, so please keep your feedback coming, either through the website, or through Facebook, through Twitter, or by post. We love receiving your postcards, and we'll read them out on our podcast. So now we move on to a very special guest. Nick, who have we got? That's right, Dave. Now with us in the Jodcast studio is Debbie Mitchell. Now, Debbie, you were a student here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. Yeah, that's right, I was. Now, the reason that we've got you in here to talk to us is that you've moved out of astronomy into quite an interesting job. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, I work for NATS, which uh, was formerly known as National Air Traffic Services. So we supply air traffic control for all the large airports in the UK. Uh, so I'm not actually a controller. I work um, in the operational analysis department. And I am currently on my last placement as part of the graduate scheme. So I'm working in the Wake Vortex team. So we've got a database that contains all of the Wake Vortex reports that are submitted by pilots every time they undergo an encounter and we perform analysis on that. 
You can't see them apart from in special conditions. For example, if you have a lot of water vapour, uh, you can see them then. Um, because the pressure underneath the wing is higher than above the wing, um, which creates lift, then air is naturally going to move from a region of high pressure to a region of low pressure. So you get these spinning vortices of air off all uh, surfaces that uh, create lift on an aircraft. So obviously these will create a hazard to any following aircraft because these vortices persist for a few minutes after an aircraft has flown through a region of air. So we have to put special separations between aircraft depending upon the weight of the aircraft. We can't get them too close together, otherwise aircraft undergo what's known as a wake vortex encounter, which can cause them to either lose altitude quickly or roll rapidly to the left or right. So would that affect smaller aircraft more than bigger ones? Yes, it does. So we have larger separations uh, for small aircraft behind large aircraft, for example, a Boeing 747. The reason why we got you in here to talk to us is pretty much because... Well, you trained in astronomy. What were the skills that you learned as an astronomer? How do they translate into the job that you do now? What makes you special? Okay, well, I think it transferred quite well, really, because I went into a job within the operational analysis department of NATS. So the main requirement for that is analytical skills, which is something that I certainly developed during my time as a PhD student at Jodrell. So what is your PhD research on? Um, it was on planetary nebulae, so I was looking at the structures and kinematics of planetary nebulae, specifically those which are known to have a binary star at the centre. So I was looking to see if those types of planetary nebulae have a different structure to ones which are thought to only have a single star at the centre. Remind us a bit about what a planetary nebula is. A planetary nebula is uh, what happens to medium-sized stars, for example, uh, stars like our sun uh, towards the end of their lives once they've gone through the red giant phase they then blow off in a slow wind process their outer hydrogen envelopes which are then later ionized by the central star as it starts to contract and we get these really pretty shells which are often shown in the newspapers for example the cat's eye nebula or the eskimo nebula so you're modeling the flow of gas out from these planetary nebulas or in these planetary nebulas uh, I wasn't looking at the dynamics of them, I was looking at the kinematics, so it's looking at uh, the spectrum, you can work out from the Doppler shift, for example if you're looking at a spherical nebula, um, you'd have a characteristic spectra from that, or if you're looking at a bipolar ob uh, nebula end-on, then you'd expect to see very high blue or red shifts, because you're seeing a gas moving towards you or away from you in a cylinder shape. So I guess you learnt during your PhD research how to model the movement of gas in these objects. And I suppose, yeah. therefore, it's not such a great leap to modelling how air flows over an aircraft wing. That's correct, yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us and telling us about your experiences. So thank, thank you very much. Now, just thinking of uh, those vortices, there is an ap astronomy picture of the day which showed a jet flying through the clouds formed by two flares which had been released by a US Air Force jet which clearly and very beautifully show the vortices following uh, following an aircraft just in the same way that, that Debbie's uh, doing and I think Stuart you have uh, you'll put a link of that onto the show notes. We certainly will it was back in August 2006 two years ago not quite to the day so we will we'll put a link to that on the show notes. Wonderful. So from one interview to another Nick, can you tell us a little bit about who we've got up next? 
Yes, indeed. Now, when we were at the National Astronomy Meeting in Belfast, we caught up with Dill Folks. Now, Dill Folks is famous for having created the Folks telescopes, two telescopes which can be used by anywhere in the world for astronomy education or astronomy research. One is in the Northern Hemisphere. In Hawaii. And the other one is in the Southern Hemisphere. In Australia. That's right. So we caught up with him and chatted with him about why he decided to develop the Fawkes telescopes. Well, we're joined now by Dill Fawkes, who has done an absolutely <coughs> wonderful thing for international astronomy. You have funded and constructed two telescopes for the use of, of everybody. This is right, and they're available for free, or they're available freely, I should say, not for free. Now, why, <coughs> why have you done this? Well, as I say, it's a long story, but um, the real initiative comes from my concern about education in the UK. Education in the UK is in an appalling state of affairs, especially science and mathematics. Um, you know, it's, it's mind-blowing to me that you have to have special dispensation to do the three subjects, biology, physics, and chemistry, and it's a nonsense now. Um, Explain why, what, what, what exactly is occurring, because <coughs> we have uh, people listening from all across the world with different educational systems, and they'll be curious to know what's happening in the UK, because for many years the UK has looked to as being, uh, well, ha has its education system as being um, looked up to. I mean, it's well, a first world country, it's, you know. I used to think that, but if you look at the, if you look at the output from <coughs> our schools today, they, compared with, say, kids from Russia or China or Singapore, uh, on the sciences, I mean, they're just just not a patch. Um, and the stuff that I used to do when I was at school is just not talked in schools anymore. I mean, kids don't get basic things like logarithms in in, the, in their mathematics uh, uh, education at school. Um, and they're ruining geometry. I mean, geometry has basically been taken out of the curriculum. So it's, it's fundamental things like this that I think are really, really sad. And <clears throat> what I'm trying to do at the moment, actually, is, is get some quantitative information about this because there's a lot of qualitative talk about dumbing down the sciences, but it would be nice to get some real facts and figures to show that it actually has been dumbed down. And I'm doing this with a, with a, a colleague who's written um, A-level science books and A-level maths books, and he wrote these some 20, 30 years ago, and he's now updating them. So what I'm uh, going to get him to do is uh, an analysis of what's actually been taken out so you can really see the difference in, in education 40 years ago and education today. So it's a longitudinal study, presumably based <coughs> on what information you can get from 40 years ago. It's a very difficult job, though, isn't it? Because you're trying to understand... Well, the education methods have changed over 40 years, like in many other fields of, of research, study, and um, other human endeavors. 40 years, how we taught people 40 years ago is very different to how well, we teach people now. A, it's not just a matter of how you teach, it's what's actually in the curriculum. I mean, for example, if you say that uh, differentiation and integration is no longer required at A-level physics, then you know that something's gone wrong, yes? Yeah? Something's been reduced. I mean, if they have to teach this... At university, I mean, most university courses are now four years, whereas when I went to university, there were three years. So you have to take, you know, an extra year to get up to the standard that we, we got to when I was at school. You're specifically concerned about the content of classroom uh, science. Yeah, yeah. 
What specifically worries you? I mean, you've mentioned logarithms, presumably that's because you're a <coughs> mathematician and also differential equations, again, mathematical concepts. But what about the other subjects like, I guess, maybe physics is related in, in many ways, but also how about biology and chemistry? I mean, do you... Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not an educationalist. I mean, I don't know um, enough about these subjects. I mean, I, I fall into the trap of the Daily Mail readers of saying, you know, it's all it not, it's not, the, not the way it used to be. Mm. Um, so I need to get some quantitative information to, to demonstrate this. But I, I think children aren't stupid. They realize that they've got to get ticks in the boxes and they'll take the easy options. And, you know, science is perceived as difficult and it's not really difficult. But, you know, so you've got lots of things working against you. You've got the kids who are bright and say, so we'll take the easy option. You've got the schools who are on metrics, you know, they're trying to demonstrate that they're one of the best. So, not surprisingly, they will encourage the kids to take the soft options so that they look good. You know, the whole system of government being metric-driven is is sort of anti-difficult subjects, really. Is that the main reason, in your <coughs> view, why the, situ- the system is in the state that it is? Is because the educational system is metric-driven. We're all trying to achieve uh, the best position in our in our grade lists of schools and universities. Well, that's what it feels like to me. But as I say, I'm not an educationalist, and don't sort of drag me into that trap because I, I don't want people to say, well, what the hell does he know about education? Cause, um, I'm trying to find out a bit more about it. But as I say, gross generalisation, I do think children are, are, are not going into science. I mean, the numbers of kids doing maths and physics A-levels has been on the decline for years, and it would be nice to stop that and change it. You've done something positive, though, in in producing the telescopes specifically. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying to do. <coughs> excuse me. I'm trying to do my little bit. I mean, my little bit really is to say, look, guys, this this is really interesting stuff, and it's and it, the project themselves the, itself is not just an astronomy project. It's it's rich in all sorts of material. It's rich in well, first and foremost, you've got two robots located um, million thousands of miles away from the UK. And so you've got robotics technology. You've got uh, communications technology. You've got at a primary school level, you've got things like geography, which you can teach. You know, you can say to the kids, well, why, why not put these telescopes in these locations? And you can teach them about the fact that it's dark in Hawaii when it's daylight in the UK. So the project is, is meant to be a very, very rich project for inspirational teachers to use and to inspire their kids. I mean, with, with a good teacher, and I met some good teachers up in the world. Um, at a primary school, and they were just absolutely fascinated. And this was before the telescopes were installed. One of the teachers there was using this project to get the kids interested in all sorts of things, you know, astronomy, um, communications, uh, geography, mm. all, all manner of things. So it's we, we should mention the, the, the Fox telescopes, Fox North and Fox South. Fox North is... Where? In Hawaii. Yeah, and Vogue South in... Australia. Right. So Your we home can, country, I guess. Yeah. Oh, now. <laughs> you mentioned swearing. <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute. New Zealand. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, okay. yeah, the other side of the world, yeah, whatever. Um, so you mentioned that you can... It's not just going straight into astronomy. You can start at a very early age with geography by simply explaining where these telescopes are and, right. and working towards why you have two telescopes on the other side of the world, the diurnal patterns, day, night, and presumably also go into seasons about why it's, you know, longer nights up there as opposed to down down there. So yeah. it's it, it seems that you're trying to draw students in from a very, very early age and show them that, you well, certainly through their teachers, 
that it isn't just jumping straight into uh, cutting-edge astronomy discoveries that you're expecting people to do with these telescopes. You can start off at a very, very basic level. That's right. That's that's very much the case. As I say, this <coughs> I, I met this, uh, I can't remember the name of the school now, but the teacher there was, was fa- fascinating because... She'd used the project um, as a basis to introduce all manner of things. I've mentioned geography already. Um, but the, the kids also did some um, ICT. They did a PowerPoint presentation. Okay? They put together um, the work for, their, for an entire year on a PowerPoint. And then, amazingly, they, they wanted to talk to me. So this head teacher phones me up and says, would you come and talk to our kids? And I'm thinking, why on earth am I spending five hours to go on a train up to Liverpool to talk to these wretched kids, you know. <clears throat> but bless them, they'd, you know, they'd done all their research and they all wanted to ask questions. So again, the project, if you like, is, is generating little Paxmans, you know. I mean, they'd, 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 all, <laughs> they'd all thought about the questions, you know, mm. they thought seriously about it. So again, just showing the diversity of the project, you can, you can have children... Um, just coming on, asking questions of someone else, and working in teams. And then a teamwork thing was another theme that came out of this project. I mean, kids working together to develop this PowerPoint presentation with voiceover. Now, I don't know how to do a voiceover PowerPoint <laughs> presentation. Not a but, but, but these are 10-year-old kids, you know. Yeah. As I say, you've got this inspirational teacher using the telescope project um, for, for 10 and 11-year-old kids. I mean, it's fantastic. What we're trying to do now, I mean, I've, I've joined up with a, a guy uh, in the States called Wayne Rosing, who's basically taken over responsibility for the project. <clears throat> and he's expanding the concept, so we're going to have a range of apertures. So we're going to have a lot of smaller telescopes, half-meter telescopes, and we're going to have a network of one-meter telescopes. Um, so the two-meter telescopes will be the icing on the cake, so that the plan really is to start with... Um, the youngsters using the small telescopes, and as they get better and better at, at, at the uh, at the science, then we can get them onto the big telescopes. So, as I say, it's not really about the aperture size that's input that, that's really important. Um, so, telescope availability is there for, as I say, for an inspirational teacher. Um, to get into this inquiry-based learning, that's that's what we're trying to do. So, if there are students who are listening at various levels at school and they think this is great i get i get my mitts on some you know uh telescope time how can they do it do they need to talk to their teacher first and the teacher <coughs> then talks to uh talks to you essentially or well, the foundation the route at the moment is through the through the class otherwise you'd have total anarchy but um it, it is free access any school anywhere in the world gets free access to these telescopes um <coughs> and we we allocate half hour slots for them. But I mean, my focus is on the UK. Uh, Wayne's focus is obviously on the US. Um, but hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to get wider coverage. I mean, one, one of the fascinating things we've just done is um, Paul Roche, who runs the project for me, has initiated a project um, supported by the British Council, which was interesting, uh, in Russia. And, and my main interest in Russia was to see the difference between the maths um, that's taught in schools there and to see if we can learn from what they do. Um, and bring it into this country. And um, we had something like 35 schools in Russia use the project, use the Fox Telescope for uh, a year. Um, and I was privileged to go to Moscow recently to, to listen to the results of, of, of their work. Um, and this was organized at Moscow State University. So you got these young kids who'd been working with the project. Um, coming to Moscow University to give a presentation on their work. And, and they're surrounded by professors in the university. 
And not only do they give a presentation about the math that they've done, but they give it in English. Mm. So you've got these Russian kids giving a presentation on work that they've done. Um, and the idea was to find out who had done the best project. But, you know, the mathematics that they'd done in these, um, in this work was, fa- was fascinating and really, really good. So we're trying to, trying to understand what it is that really makes, makes the difference in, as I say, from Russian education to the UK education. Mm. And as I say, it's not just about maths and geography. I mean, with spectrographs now, you can, you can do some really good chemistry, um, which is, which is also useful. But again, it's teaching the teachers and getting ticks in the boxes so we can make it curriculum relevant, which is the frustration here. That's an important thing is teachers will be listening to this and wondering, whoa, this is fantastic. I'm a geography teacher. How do I get involved? Do you provide training for teachers to, to learn how to use the telescopes and get, therefore get their students, uh, working on these Very projects? Very much so. I mean, most of the money that I'm spending on the project now, uh, which is nothing like as much as it was in, in the early days, but it's basically um, training the teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and we've got, we're trying to do online training, but we also do uh, teacher training in groups. And this is very, very successful because if we, if we train the teachers, then they go on and it works like a pyramid. I mean, the teachers then train other teachers. And it, it's very, very effective way of, of getting into the system you know. and there's some fantastic stuff you can do with these telescopes I mean myself my own personal research interest is in extrasolar planets through microlensing sort of very quick time domain observations of um, one-off events and we routinely use Fox North usually yeah. uh, to, to get vital observations so when, when, when you talk to kids about finding extrasolar planets their eyes light up and they well they immediately start asking about aliens but that's a, that's enough to, to, to get them involved, yeah. uh, get them interested in, in the <coughs> research, which can be done. And it's simply a matter of saying, look, you guys can get involved. You know, you can, we provide information about what to look at. How about you spend a little bit of time learning about the science, the background science, and how the telescopes will fit into that and give that extra data point, which could simply be vital for discovering a new planet. Indeed. Well, I, unfortunately, I missed the presentation, but there were some uh, school children here um, two days ago giving a presentation on their work. And... Uh, according to the people I spoke to in the audience, they were very, very impressed with what had been achieved. And again, I was here last year when another professor here, Alan Fitzsimmons, who's um, working on asteroid uh, searches, was working with some students in the, in the summer vacation, and the work that they did was fantastic. Hmm. I mean, these are uh, these were six-form kids, and they were using Fourier transforms. And I said to the physics teacher, I said, would, would you be doing Fourier transforms in the class? He said, no way. You yeah. Know? I said, so because they'd been involved in the Fourth Telescope pro- Project, they were, they were introduced to mathematics, which you, know, you and I used to do at school, but they don't do it at school anymore. Well, we wish you all the best in the, the teaching the teachers. Uh, we will have links on our website for where teachers can go to inquire about uh, education or how, how they can learn how to use the telescopes. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure you've been thanked before, but thank you very much on behalf of everybody who's used the Fox telescopes. Thank you. So there you have it, Dill Fox with some fairly strong views on the state of UK education. However, he has done something about it. He has gifted the use of these two fantastic telescopes to the world. So if you are interested, then do take a look at the links that we have on the Jodcast page, follow them to the Fox Telescope page, and, and read about them. And those two telescopes are now part of the Las Cumbres Observatory Global Telescope, which is a plan to make even more telescopes available for the whole world to use in a whole range of longitudes, so you'll be able to use them all day long, because at the moment you're limited to when it's dark in Hawaii and when it's dark in Australia. So we'll put links to LCOGT on our show notes as well. Very good. Now, 
As some of you may have realized, the Jodcast is going video. Thanks to our sponsors, the Science and Technology Facilities Council, STFC, we earned some extra money to go and buy some video equipment and go out and do some video podcasting. Now, these are currently being edited by our two producers and editors, and they will be made available, the first one will be made available sometime in September. So do stay tuned to the Jodcast front page and just watch for those videos to start rolling in. But have no fear, we will continue giving you all of your bi-monthly news and interviews on the Jodcast podcast, the audio stuff. Yes, that's right. Now, you should point out that the video podcasts are going to be very, very short. They're going to be only a few minutes long, but we will still commit to bringing you extended interviews with the top astronomers from around the world, the news, and of course, the night sky on the audio podcast. And without further ado, let's have... Our night sky for September, with the inimitable Ian Morrison. Well, the night sky in September. Well, of course, the sun is setting rather earlier. You don't have to stay up quite so late to see the heavens. And not long after nightfall, you can see that lovely area of stars with Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila high in the southwest. The three brightest stars, Deneb, Vega and Altair form what's called the Summer Triangle. I've talked about that part of the sky at length in previous of these little programs. If you want to learn more about that area, go back and perhaps pick up last month's night sky section of the podcast. But if you move sort of round to the east, fairly high in the south, perhaps a little bit to the southeast, we have the winged horse Pegasus, upside down as it happens. And up to the left of that, we have first Andromeda and then Cassiopeia. Now, in that part of the sky lies one of the jewels, really, of the Northern Hemisphere, and that's the Andromeda Galaxy, M31. And on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, just put night sky into Google, I've actually put a chart to show you two ways of easily finding your way to Andromeda. One way is to start with the square of Pegasus and take the upper left-hand star, which actually is called Alpha Andromedae. If you move round two stars, slightly curving upwards from there, and then turn sharp right, you'll come to another little fairly bright star. If you move the same distance again, you should see, certainly with binoculars, the Andromeda galaxy, a sort of a faint fuzzy oval. And if you can get yourself to a really dark sky site and there's no moon, you should see it with your unaided eye. Sometimes Pegasus is a bit below the horizon, and if so, there's another way of finding Andromeda, and that's to use the constellation Cassiopeia. The um, three stars to the upper right form, obviously, a bit of a, a V, or an arrow, really, and if you follow that arrow downwards, you'll come to Andromeda Galaxy as well. So... Two nice ways, easy ways, to find the galaxy. The nearest large galaxy to us. And a nice thing to think about when you actually look at this is that the photons that are falling on your retina left there over two and a half million years ago. You're literally looking back into time. So what about the planets? Well, Jupiter is still really the highlight of the planetary scene this month. And it's seen in the south as nightfall begins. 
As the Earth goes round the Sun, we might say on the inside track, in fact, over the last month or so, Jupiter has been seen to move westwards relative to the stars. That's called retrograde motion. But on September the 7th, it begins to move eastwards again and is above, a bit to the left, of the handle of the teapot in Sagittarius. Sadly, in northern England, this is very low in the sky, so we don't see either Sagittarius or Jupiter all that well. If you're looking at it with a telescope, you may notice that the top and the bottom are tinted slightly bluish and slightly red. This is refraction in the atmosphere. Which way round it looks depends upon whether your telescope inverts or not. One way to get a somewhat clearer image of Jupiter is to observe it through, let's say, a green filter, and then the image is certainly clearer. If you've got a fairly big telescope, perhaps eight inches or more, you could actually try and use a very narrow band filter. There's an O3 filter, which is a very narrow range of wavelengths in the green. And that, of course, eliminates refraction completely. And I tried this the other night, and I was actually quite surprised at the detail I could see on Jupiter. So although it's low in the sky, it's still worth having a look, perhaps not getting more than about 15 or 16 degrees above the southern horizon. Well, Saturn is in conjunction with the Sun on September the 4th, on the far side of the Sun. So obviously there's no hope of seeing it in the early part of the month. However, towards the end of September, it will reappear in the pre-dawn sky. And in fact, by the very end of the month, will rise about two hours before the Sun with a magnitude of plus 0.9. Now that's significantly less than it often appears to be. Because when you look at it that first time, once it reappears, you'll see that the rings are at an angle of just four degrees to edge on. And so obviously there's a lot less light reflected from Saturn and its rings. Um, as we go towards the end of the year, that angle will decrease and there will come a point when they disappear completely. I'll let you know more about that as the time comes. Now Mercury was behind the Sun beginning of last month, but it's gradually moving to what's called eastern elongation. It gets there on the 11th of September, and that's when its angular separation to the eastern side, to the left of the Sun, is at its greatest. The problem at this time of year is that the ecliptic, which is the path of the Sun across the sky, and it's basically along that line, roughly, that the planets are seen. It has a very shallow angle with the horizon. So although it's some way away from the sun, its elevation above the ground is very low, making it quite hard to see. And I'll come to back to that shortly in the highlights. Uh, Mars, likewise, is also very low above the horizon, not far from Venus. And again, I'll come back to that shortly. Uh, it's only got magnitude 1.7 now, and the angular size is just under four arc seconds. So it just looks like a little, tiny little, perhaps a disk, if the seeing is good. And again, Venus can be seen very low in the west after sunset. It's got a magnitude of minus 3.8, so you can pick it out fairly well, even without binoculars, but you have to have a good low western horizon, because its elevation isn't really very great. So I'm going to come to those three now in what we might call the highlights of the month. Well, I've pre-flashed a couple of these. Between the 3rd and the 19th of September, 
we do have a trio of planets really quite close. In fact, within five degrees, that's the definition of a trio. And these are Venus, which obviously is the brightest, just to the lower right of Venus, and it actually can get immediately south, that's called a conjunction, we have Mars, and below, about three and a half degrees away, we have Mercury. So they stick pretty close together for quite some time. On the 11th and the 12th of September, we do get, in fact, conjunctions of the two, when you have two of the planets basically with the same right ascension. So they're sort of one above the other if they were due south. Um, quite a fun thing, perhaps, to try and do would be to spot them in the daytime if it's clear. Now, they're about 25 degrees away from the sun. So if you are looking, make sure you don't look anywhere near the sun. That shouldn't be too difficult. What you need to do is to use a compass and find where due south is. You have to, have to take the magnetic variation in into account. So find where due south is. If on the 11th or the 12th, you look due south at about 2.30, British summer time, and take some binoculars and lift them up about 30 degrees from the horizon. That's obviously a third of the way from the horizon to the zenith. There's a very good chance you'll pick out Venus. And once you've got Venus in your binoculars, if you keep that to the upper part of the field of view, you should see Mars a little bit down to its lower right, only about 13 arc minutes away. And then about three degrees south, you'll also see Mercury. So I've never actually looked at Venus in the middle of the day. That could well be worth a try around the 11th and the 12th of September. Now, just after that, on the 13th, there's another interesting event, a lunar occultation of the planet Neptune. And if you have never actually looked for Neptune, it's a way, perhaps, of finding out where it is quite easily. But I'm afraid you've actually got to wait up after midnight. It's about 2 o'clock onwards on the 13th of September. And it passes essentially behind the moon. Obviously, it's not Neptune moving. It's the moon moving across the sky, which occults Neptune. And basically, at somewhere around 24 minutes past three British summertime, it depends a little bit where you actually live in the UK, you'll see an occultation. As Neptune has a disk, which is 2.3 arc seconds across at the moment, it actually doesn't disappear instantly. When stars go behind the moon, it just goes just like that. It's gone instantly. But of course, because Neptune has a disk and has size, its image will disappear a little bit more slowly. It might take a few seconds. Well, a final one to try. Um, the 27th of September. Now, I mentioned the fact that Saturn is going to be in the pre-dawn sky at the end of the month. Well, just after 5.30 British summer time, which is about half an hour before dawn, you will have a chance to see Saturn just a few degrees away from a very thin crescent moon. In fact, 51 hours before new moon, and only 4% is illuminated, so a very thin crescent. And so you see that, look a little bit to the left, you'll have a chance to see Saturn, perhaps the first time you'll see it once it's come round behind the sun. Slightly interestingly, I, I was in China to see the eclipse uh, last month, and I looked out of my hotel window at about five in the morning, um, 
and I could actually see a thin crescent moon above the buildings across the road and photographed it both with my camera and also with a small telescope. Uh, that was just 36 hours before the total eclipse of the sun, which by definition is at new moon. And that's certainly the, the, the closest to new moon I've ever actually photographed it. And I put those pictures uh, along with a little report on the night sky page. So I think there's a fair bit to look out for during September and I wish you all the best. Thanks, Ian. And of course, more from him next month in the October issue. And that brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end, I'm afraid. So thanks once again to Dill Folks and Debbie Mitchell for coming and talking to us on the Jodcast. Please do continue to give us your feedback, as I said, over the website, on Facebook, on Twitter, on postcards, by pigeon, however you want to get it to us. We'll listen to it and we'll read it out on the Jodcast. And do, of course, give us five-star ratings on iTunes. We will love you forever. We won't give you anything other than high-quality podcasts, but we'll still like you very much. So, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next episode of the Jodcast. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye, and Jod on. Bye. Bye. At the third stroke, the time until the next Jodcast will be half a month, approximately. This has been an episode of the Jodcast, produced at the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, supported by the Science and Technology Facilities Council, and is covered by the Creative Commons licence. For more details, please go to www.jodcast.net.